If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willers getting booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Wyrts and Willie says in early spring, this Groundhog Day. I'm sorry, did I miss winter? Hello, sunshine. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. As uh, Kurt Mann pointed out, uh, did, did we miss winter? Was there a, um, um, you know, uh, I, I just gauge this by my snowblower action, which I'm still waiting to use, by the way. You and I, every everybody who lives who owns a snowblower has been waiting to use their snowblower this year. You know, when we got our house, uh, and we've been in our house now for 23 years, with for the first 10 years, I never had a snowblower because I was a young buck, you know, <laughs> hammer through, hammer through. And then, what a screw this. Why am I doing this? And then, uh, but it, usually I get it out like once or twice, three times a year, you know, a few times anyway, when you get that big you know, foot drift dump and such, but nothing. So, you know, you just, and I think I've been out twice this year, just shoveling. Cause I, you know, why not? Uh, you don't want it to turn to ice as they say, but yeah, really it, it's been a, a very mild winter. And, you know, we were talking about this, uh, the fam and I, and it's like, if we don't get something in the next week or two is like, uh, I don't know, is anything that we get after that going to even stay? Uh, considering, you know, the way the lawn's heaving in the driveway and, and the roads and such, um, you know, is there any frost? So uh, anyway, not a bad Groundhog Day. And, you know, normally I probably wouldn't draw this much attention to Groundhog Day, except for it's sunny. Sort of. Well, it wasn't this morning, but it's it's going to be sunny through the next week or so, it looks like. And, uh, you know, starting to clear up now and through the overnight time. So you might see sun in your area. And then Saturday and Sunday are looking pretty good uh, into next week as well. So and temperatures sitting around uh, three to five degrees. So, you know, you really can't argue with that. And uh, groundhog or not, uh, I think it's worth celebrating. What the heck? Because the sun is here. And, and the only time we've really been talking about the sun lately is the solar eclipse, which is when it's going to disappear behind the moon coming up on April 8th. All right. So uh, a good weekend uh, in tow. That's for sure. All right. Uh, another jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. As I mentioned, uh, Wyatt and Willie said it was going to be a early spring. Watch this like it just blasted, Nick. No, never mind. Keep positive, man. Uh, and here's knock big news, too. Knock on wood. No. Don't, yeah, don't yeah, jinx us. Yeah. yeah. That's my head. Here, I'll lean forward a little bit more. Uh, NHL is going to return to the Olympics. Great news. 2026 and beyond, I guess, for the next two anyway. And then they'll go after that and see what happens. So it's so nice that um, finally, you know, people are, are are working together instead of sitting in their individual silos thinking they're better than everybody else and making stuff like this happen because at the end of the day, and I don't know whether anybody realizes it or not, but the NHL, the NFL, the CFL, uh, you know, baseball, F1, racing, whatever. They're surviving because you're watching. So at the end of the day, isn't that what fans want to see? And why would you not give that to them? 
So uh, kudos to the NHL and and so on. And, and you know, we were watching a bit of the uh, All-Star stuff last night. Great to see the girls out there and uh, getting the attention that uh, they deserve. And many have talked. It's just a matter of time before each one of them is wearing the emblem of the major cities that they represent and coming under the wing of the uh, NHL as well. Wouldn't it be cool to see that happening? Wouldn't it be able to wouldn't it be cool to see their version of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Boston Bruins, what have you? All right. Uh, Public Safety Minister uh, Dominic LeBlanc is testifying before the Foreign Interference Committee. And, you know, this just this stuff just keeps, you know, uh, building up and building up and, and how much they don't know. This all started way back when, when a global and global and global mail uh, reporter uh, talked to CSIS and through their sources said, you know, we're, there's evidence of of election interference in not the last election, but the last two. And it was also pointed out that it, although reached both parties, favored the liberals because the conservatives are tougher on the Chinese Communist Party than they are. So, um, you know, we knew about this, whatever. Now we're finally getting confirmation of it through Freedom of Information Act and such. So uh, the safety minister today comes out and said he didn't realize there was such an intelligence imbalance. In other words, the amount of intelligence we get get from people, and we saw that when the Prime Minister stood up in the House of Commons and shot his mouth off about India, stressing that relationship, no matter the... uh, 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 the allegations, what have you, that was information supplied from the U.S. But I don't think he was supposed to share it with everybody. But once again, he was on the verge of getting caught by, uh, you know, uh, a press that's more engaged in this than what he is. So off he goes. So it's hilarious that the safety minister stands up there at a foreign interference conference and says, I had no idea there was such an imbalance to the amount of information we get and the relatively nothing we give anybody else because we're just not doing it. And again, this after the whole CSIS debacle and the election interference, which came out a while ago, and, and of course, spilling the intelligence of the U.S. to the world in the House of Commons on India. And I don't think that was the idea of giving him the information. Not so he could be the first on the block with a megaphone. So, uh, again, it just shows you how the left hand just has no idea what the right hand is doing. And, you know, it's not just intelligence, although that is where this argument first started, this discussion first started way back when, when the story broke about election interference in both the 2019 and the 2021 elections. And then it's just fallen like a deck of cards since then, just kept going like dominoes. And now all of a sudden we have, I had no idea. If you have no idea, you have no reason being there because that's your job. Not to stand up and make announcements like uh, $121 million to Ontario to combat guns, gangs, and a rapid increase in auto theft. I mean, well, you know, it seems obvious. You know, if Stomp and Tom was still around, I bet you he'd have another song written for uh, the Professional Women's Hockey League. I bet he would. Come on. Uh, maybe someone should get on that.
Uh, the Professional Women's Hockey League has reached its first quarter. I don't know if you're watching the uh, showcase last night, part of the NHL All-Star uh, weekend, which is going on uh, in Toronto this year. Um, you know, I, I've watched a few games, haven't caught every one, but certainly quite a few. And uh, I'm always impressed by the way that they play. And it's it, it, I, you feel this time it's right because they seem to have the TV support uh, with networks and such. And they seem to have some major uh, sponsors as well. Where is the NHL on all of this? Uh, I guess we'll see. Let's bring in Ian Kennedy, feature writer with the Hockey News, focusing on women's hockey, social issues and the global growth of the game author of on account of darkness shining a light on race in sport is with us now ian thank you for the time hope you're well thanks for having me it's always good to talk to you so ian your thoughts on what we've seen so far and the debut of this league i think it's been just an overwhelming success from just about every metric you can look at we've had record attendance levels broken in canada and the usa world records broken for attendance and those are going to continue to fall as the season progresses uh, on the ice as you mentioned the product has been outstanding i don't think there's too many people out there that are going to argue against that anymore and um, some of the skeptics that were out there are now believers but the the game is fast it's physical we've got the best north american players and, and many of the best europeans in the league um, so you know it's just really they've knocked it out of the park and as you mentioned the, the broadcasting has been top notch so that not only does the league exist now, but people can find it and they can see it. And that was always a real struggle of women's hockey in the past was you can turn on your TV at night and find any men's game that you want to see. But until this yeah. season, we were never able to do that with women's hockey. And now, whether it's on one of those networks or YouTube, uh, it's there. And people can just turn on a device, turn on their TV, and they can watch a game any night of the week. And, you know, Ian, I think also that this we've always been looking at this from an NHL perspective or that perspective through that lens of the game. Because, you know, I got two kids. The oldest is a girl, 21, has played hockey since she was seven. So I look into the audience and I see tons of little girls with their wearing their hockey sweaters and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I think people are forgetting there's a whole aspect of the audience that hasn't even been tapped yet, uh, as opposed to those that just watch the, you know, the, the men's game. Absolutely. And I think that was part of the reason of the crossover last night with PWHL playing at the NHL All-Star Weekend was to, to start exposing the caliber of play to more people because it is great hockey. I mean, and it's played in a way that uh, the NHL went through lots of different periods. The, you know, the clutch and grab uh, left wing locks of the 1990s, the dead puck era. Uh, but women's hockey has always been so centered on skill and removing some of those aspects from the game, but still remaining very physical. If you watch the rivalry series or yeah. PWHL game, there's, there's bodies flying everywhere. And, but that opportunity for more fan growth uh, is immense. I mean, we're seeing sellouts at many arenas. Uh, I have a daughter as well, and, and she's, uh, she's five, and she just loves turning on that, that TV at night and pointing mm. at the screen and saying, oh, she's good, and she's good, and she's good. Yeah. And that's just a statement that you know we've never been able to, to do. And it, it, so it's, I think we're going to see a major boom in girls and women's hockey across North America over the next five to ten years. And uh, you know, because of this, just like we saw the Austin Matthews and people like that come out of non-traditional hockey centers in, in the NHL, we're definitely going mm. to have a generation of superstars 
coming in women's hockey because of this season. How is this different, or is it in your in your mind from the international game? Because you talked about the physicality, and that's one of the first things I noticed. Like, wow, this is getting rough. Yeah, there will be a few adaptations that uh, I think players are going to have to get used to moving back and yeah. forth, and that's similar in the men's game too, where there's different rules here and there. But uh, it's definitely far more physical. They definitely are still. If you speak to Jana Hefford, uh, they're still finding that perfect line of what legal and what's not and where they want that to land Um, because as many people have said they're kind of building this plane while it's already in flight and uh, Mm. so the league is still figuring it out as well but but there are going to be changes that way I think the biggest change for the international game might just be that we see some players on those national teams that we never saw before because uh, the ability for Hockey Canada and USA Hockey to scout and watch those players go head-to-head against other elite players is now readily available, which uh, before that was kind of restricted to a, you know, a two week camp and that was it. Or these couple of rivalry series games where if you had one off nights, uh, it could change your entire future. But, uh, you know, now they've got a much larger sample size against much better competition. And that's only going to start growing that international competition as well. We heard uh, earlier today Gary Bettman announcing that uh, they're going to let the NHL play in the Olympics for the next two and and go from there. Uh, With the PWHL, are we going to see more involvement with the NHL? Are we going to see a PWHL version of the Boston Bruins, the Toronto Maple Leafs? Well, that was a model that the WNBA took when they launched a few decades ago. And the NHL is giving just about everything they can give to the PWHL aside from financial support. And uh, I think that we've seen in this first little run here that the viability of professional women's hockey doesn't need to depend on any form of men's support or men's leagues. And, uh, but, you know, there's definitely going to be partnership between them. We're still going to see all-star involvement probably over the next couple of years. We're still going to see outdoor games coming together. Um, There's, uh, speculation that uh, next month we'll see uh, a game in Pittsburgh at uh, the PPG Paints Arena there. Um, I would imagine that after Scotiabank uh, breaks the world record for attendance in February here that uh, we're going to see a game later this season in Montreal attempting to to take that up a notch again. And, and all those are cross-promoted at NHL games and NHL venues. Um, so we're definitely going to have to see more. And if you know, if the demand for tickets continues to rise as it is right now, uh, we might have to see even more partnerships between those facilities and and the teams in both leagues. So there's tons of room there for growth. Um, there's a few hurdles in the way that might restrict that. To the biggest one being that the PWHL is owned by a single entity, so all six teams have one owner. Um, so I, I can't see the NHL giving a lot of money to that individual, but to, mm-hmm. they're definitely going to be working together to make this thing a, a long-lasting success. Ian Kennedy with us, feature writer with the Hockey News, uh, the Professional Women's Hockey League uh, in its first inaugural season and uh, certainly uh, taking off and going like gangbusters. Ian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. We keep hearing a lot about ceasefire. Uh, and chatter of, but not a lot of evidence of in the war, ongoing war between uh, Israel and Hamas and what is going on along the Gaza Strip. For an update, in the, are there any 
Uh, is there hope for a ceasefire? Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, and the Monk School, specializing in international history. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So we keep hearing chatter about a ceasefire. Where is this going? Is there any reason to think anything is different today? Well, we don't know with certainty what's going on behind closed doors, but uh, so far it does seem that neither neither Israel nor Hamas has rejected the uh, the proposed deal. Um, but there are serious sticking points on on both sides, uh, particularly pertaining to the timing and the duration of a ceasefire. Uh, are both sides looking for an out yet? I, well, Hamas certainly is. I mean, Hamas would be the main beneficiary of a ceasefire. It would have time to regroup. And uh, incidentally, this comes at a time when Israel is on the verge of shifting, pivoting its uh, its military operations from Khan Yunus, where it's almost destroyed the Hamas military presence, to Rafah, where it would uh, commence uh, commence new operations. Uh, and uh, and Israel uh, has uh, has justified reservations about about a ceasefire. Uh, so a ceasefire is not a resolution. No, no, not by any stretch of the means. Although a ceasefire could uh, actually get in the way of 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 of, of, uh, of definitively clearing away some of the uh, the problems here. Uh, Hamas has talked about a six week ceasefire. From what I've read and heard, the uh, the Israeli cabinet is reluctant to accept anything longer than a month. And in part, this is because the longer a ceasefire lasts, the harder it is to resume military operations and the more international pressure to maintain a ceasefire will mount. So uh, so there, there are justified grounds for reluctance to enter into a ceasefire. We hear a lot about Palestinians obviously under bombardment uh, from all of this being displaced. Are Middle Eastern countries taking uh, displaced Palestinians in? How are they helping? They're not. One of one of the long-term obstacles to securing a uh, peaceful settlement of the Palestinian issue is that Israel's other Arab neighbors have refused to resettle Palestinian refugees. Why is that, Jack? The Palestinian situation is unique. Every other refugee population created in the aftermath of World War II was resettled. But the Palestinians have been kept in refugee camps, nourished on uh, the hope of returning to uh, the land they left. And that has prolonged the conflict. So why, why are no other Middle Eastern countries helping them out in that respect? Because keeping the Palestinians as refugees in refugee camps and agitating for their return uh, really weaponizes the refugee uh, the refugee mm. problem. It becomes a tool for delegitimizing Israel. And that's the one thing that historically most of the Arab states have been able to agree upon despite their, uh, their differences over other questions. How has the discussion around this conflict, war, whatever you want to call it, changed since October 7th, do you think? I'm not sure it has fundamentally changed. I mean, the people who understood uh, what uh, what October 7th meant and why Israel had to respond are, uh, are for the most part, still in that camp. Those who were critical of Israel, Israel's response at the outset 
uh, largely remain uh, in that camp. So not much has changed. Positions have, if anything, uh, hardened, and feelings have grown perhaps more intense on both sides because we all can watch on our TV screens the uh, the damage that uh, that uh, that modern warfare creates in a built-up urban area like Gaza, and uh, and people are increasingly frustrated and appalled by it. I understand that, but that doesn't necessarily provide a solution. <coughs> So many are commenting that Israel Israel's reaction is too strong, or, uh, too much retaliation. How do you balance this? How do you balance the discussion you just referred to? Well, I point to the many efforts that, uh, that Israel has made to minimize civilian casualties. The hundreds of thousands of leaflets with detailed maps pointing to safe zones, although safe zones change from time to time. The uh, quite literally millions of emails and voicemails to Palestinians urging them to flee before uh, before bombardment. Uh, ever since the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, warfare in built-up urban areas like Gaza has generated huge numbers of civilian casualties. There's no way around that. And if anything, these casualties are just going to become more numerous. <clears throat> when dealing with an adversary like Hamas that uses its own population as human shields. Um, are we any closer to seeing a solution to this? Uh, many from the West have have uh, promoted a two-state solution, but it seems that uh, neither party is interested in that. How do you promote something that neither one is interested in? Uh, you promote it unsuccessfully. Uh, in the last interview he gave before he died, Henry Kissinger argue that the two-state solution was not viable under present conditions. He knew what he was talking about because he broke with the 1973 uh, disengagement agreements after the Yom Kippur War that really marked the beginning of the modern Middle East peace process. Piecemeal incremental approaches to uh, to things are, are more likely to work than trying to impose a definitive solution like, uh, like two states uh, on... Uh, on the region, and the Israelis recognized that a Palestinian state would uh, would not provide for peace and coexistence. And Hamas quite simply doesn't want a two-state solution. It wants Israel wiped off the map. What needs to be done here in a perfect world, which obviously we are not? Well, that's, uh, that's always sort of an interesting question in the abstract, but... Uh, I think the best that can be done under present circumstances is for Hamas to be broken militarily and for some effort made to uh, to rebuild Gaza, probably in a confederation with uh, with Jordan and with the West Bank in a confederation with uh, with Egypt. There is a possibility that these more moderate Arab states who have their own reasons for disliking Hamas might be able to help induce a uh, de-radicalization of the Palestinians, and that is a necessary precondition of any two-state solution. Thinking mm. it's going to be the product of, of creating a Palestinian state is, uh, is I think, uh, an illusion and would just lead to uh, worse violence. So more of the same until Hamas is defeated, is that possible? Yeah, uh, this situation has lasted for decades. It will take decades longer, I think, to uh, to resolve it. I mean, the road from uh, Kissinger's first agreement with uh, between Egypt and Israel in 73 to the Abraham Accords 
promising normalized relations between Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states is about 50 years. So these things take a hell of a long time, and any hope of a rapid solution is, uh, is simply blinding oneself to the realities. Mm. Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, is always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Will Doug Ford lose more of his provincial conservatives to the federal conservative campaign? It's political poaching. It happens. We've seen it. We saw it, I think, with um, uh, Trudeau and Wynne way back when. As, um, um, you know, politicians, uh, I guess, want to advance to the next stage of their political career. Is it easy to do? I don't know. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, McMaster University. And here now, Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. So I guess this happens. Is it easy to do, Henry? Is it easy for a provincial politician to to make the jump into the federal ring? Well, if you're talking about uh, Ontario and you compare it to uh, the federal uh, parliament, uh, it is people are uh, much better off financially if they are on the federal parliament. They have, first of all, there is a nice pension for the federal MPs but there's no pension for the people at Queen's Park. Mm-hmm. And also the salaries are less. So, uh, you know, quite a bit less. And so, you know, it's uh, it's tempting for people to want to jump up to the federal level. And uh, yes, so it's, uh, you know, uh, if, 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 you know, if the federal uh, conservatives come calling to certain people, uh, you know, to certain people who have seats already, and you know they've you know they've been able to get elected uh, in a provincial election, and and the uh, you know the conservatives want to win mm-hmm. that federally. Uh, it's very tempting for them to make overtures and say, "Listen, uh, why don't you come over and be our candidate in the next election, and you're going to be better off, and you know you you'll be happier." <laughs> and so that so it is that is, is you know somewhat easier to do, yeah. So it is a promotion. It's obviously you're going up in position, bigger responsibility, bigger stage and and such. But other, uh, you know, beyond the pay package, because, you know, you're going from provincial to federal. Is the game that much different? Is it is it, you know, somebody who may have, uh, you know, flourished in provincial politics gets to the federal game? and Ah, you know what? This is different than what I thought. Well, you know, one thing, you know, for some of the MPs, uh, it's going to, you know, it's hard to get anybody to talk to you about this. but. You know, uh, being uh, being a, a conservative uh, member of the Ontario legislature and uh, working under uh, the the premier, he's he's kind of a tough guy. I mean, he mm-hmm. calls the shots, and you just be, you know you just better not get on his wrong side. And you know, some people are saying, well, you know, maybe I'll be also better off if I go federally, and uh, I don't I don't have a, a strong thumb on on top of me. But you know that that could be part of part of it as well. So uh, we know there has been tension uh, between the uh, between Doug Ford and his own members. I mean, he when he asked uh, twice, he asked uh, when they had elections for the for the um, you know the um, <clears throat> the the, the uh, sorry about this. So uh, for the speaker, uh, he uh, he he you know, wanted somebody else to be, uh, somebody to be elected speaker. And instead, even though he had a majority of PC uh, members, 
In fact, uh, not quite a few of them voted with the opposition and chose somebody else. And he, you know, he was really angry, especially the second time because he had a very big, you know, majority. And and a lot of people deserted him. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tensions below the surface between uh, some of these, uh, you know, conservative uh, members of the legislature and and Doug Ford. I remember uh, as well, Henry, that lots of Kathleen Wynne's people jumped to Justin Trudeau's ship towards the end of her tenure, maybe because they saw the end was near. Yeah, well, they do. That's another thing. But now that won't be that. Well, I think right now that probably wouldn't be a big factor in in keeping people on the provincial uh, legislature because, I mean, Ford is still doing very well in in the public opinion. So, you, you know, some people might say as well, I'll be closer to home. Uh, maybe uh, you know, may, maybe uh, uh, you know that there'll be a chance for me in the next after the next election uh, to to get in, you know, to be a, a cabinet minister or something like that, uh, and get some perks that I don't have now. So that the, sometimes that happens, and so they, you know, they have to weigh a, a number of different things. Uh, you know, certainly money's part of it. You know, how much freedom they have to do things. Like you know, even even choosing their own staff, mm-hmm. uh, where where uh, you know many of them can't even do that, and uh, you know, so they 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 don't feel you know they often feel they're re- sort of hard done by and uh, and are tempted to go federally, uh, but I think I think the, I think the pension's a big different you know big thing for yeah. a person in the forties, and they have I mean I've I you know I've known a lot of the people at uh, Queens Park. You know, when they hit about in their 50s and they say, oh, my God, you know, I'm in my 50s and I have no money squirreled away for uh, for my, uh, yeah. you know, for my sunshine, years, you know, my yeah. my sunset years. So, yeah, so that that's something for, for you know, that might even tempt uh, some of the yeah. ministers. Well, when you think about it, uh, any job, it's compensation, pension, that sort of thing, pay that really makes the decision whether you go or not. Uh, Henry Jasek with us, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, McMaster University. Always fun, Henry. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Have a good weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Christian Leprec is one of those guests that by the time we have him on, there's always more stuff to talk about than we had originally scheduled. Uh, foreign interference on election, uh, the inquiry into foreign uh, interference in our elections uh, on this week and the safety minister uh, getting up and speaking and talking about how he was uh, struck that there was such an imbalance in the amount of intelligence we received from our allies as opposed to the amount of intelligence we give them, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So let's bring him in. Christian Leprac, professor, both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. You bet. Good afternoon, Scott. Yeah, and, you know, we live in an exciting world. There's always lots oh, to, talk to talk about. I know. We can have you on for an hour, Christian, honestly. Um, so the safety minister said at the uh, inquiry into foreign interference today that he was stunned on how on how much information we get from our allies and how little we give back. Um, I, I guess my first question is why? And my second question is, how can any government be struck by that? How can any minister be struck by that? Is that just another example of how little attention is being paid to this sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think it's an exemplary of the ignorance uh, by the government in terms of intelligence, security, defense sort of issues. Uh, that really, it appears that you know this is the first minister who's actually really paying attention, who's who is actually asking to be briefed, and who actually takes an interest just in the quantitative and amounts of flows uh, that are at work here. And perhaps then this is hopefully also realization that Canada, by and large, is an intelligence client within the community, but contributes very little. And so this is what's res- what's contributed to the diminishment of our standing and increasingly Canada's exclusion from key decisions among allies, in particular the Five Eyes, uh, including in particular the United States, our closest security partner, because of course, if all you'd ever do in any relationship is take, and by and large, you contribute very little um, and ever less because you don't want to take the political risk that might be involved with contributing, then you can see how allies go, well, you know, you have relatively little value and we're just going to move on and do it on our own. And that's a problem for Canada because it means now we're no longer able to shape the dangerous international environment which we live in and use our allies to as a multiplier effect for our interests, but rather we simply become a bystander in this increasingly dangerous world, which means our interests uh, and the ability of our sovereignty, uh, our sovereignty um, elected legitimate government to assert those interests are vastly diminished. So will the safety minister do something about our lack of sharing, or is this a, a distraction away from the election interference issues? Well, I think the realization and cognizance of what's actually going on in the department and in intelligence is already um, at least some good news that somebody is actually finally paying attention um, and not just preoccupied of uh, what uh, communications notes they might need to read in order to get themselves and the government reelected in the next election, but actually paying attention to the fact that this country is under serious threat and serious duress by several uh, adversarial state, non-state, and state-tolerated actors in terms of the harmful acts that are being perpetrated against Canada, against Canadians, against Canadian interests, both in Canada and abroad, uh, and hopefully realizing that our infrastructure, our national security posture, the legislation we have, the way our agencies are uh, postured is wholly inadequate for the duress and the challenges that Canadian sovereignty, Canadian prosperity, Canadian democratic processes, um, Canadian civil society, um, and the its, its diverse and multicultural facets um, are facing from espionage, from sabotage, um, and from subversion by adversarial actors. We remember it wasn't that long ago, Christian, that the government uh, the government was in deep denial that any of this was going on. Uh, and now we're hearing, uh, you know, comments like deeply embedded. We're hearing confirmation that, yes, in fact, there uh, the Chinese Communist Party did try to interfere in the last two elections. Are, are we at a different place now? I mean, I know that the government's now all of a sudden talking about it, but many of us have been talking about this for an awfully long time. How do you explain the positioning, the tone change? Well, yeah, the curiosity is, of course, that you and I and many other people in the country who pay attention with public sources have been talking about it for years. And the government that has access to vast quantities of 
intelligence and intelligence assessments and the flows to which Minister LeBlanc uh, is pointing to today uh, has largely been indifferent and ignorant uh, to what has been going on. So I think one of the things that the government has to explain is this schizophrenia in terms of what we all knew in the public domain and the inferences we drew and uh, the relative sort of ignorance uh, of the government towards these uh, towards these actions. Uh, and I do think somebody ultimately will have to answer for that because the first and foremost job of any one government in the world, regardless of its regime type, is the security of its citizens. And in a democracy, ultimately, we elect our governments, and the first and foremost job that they have is to keep the country, uh, its institutions, uh, and its people safe and secure. And it appears from what we are hearing, there was ample warning for the government that the government was failing in its most fundamental duties to Canadians uh, and the implication that has for everything from our prosperity to our democratic processes and the democratic values that this government has always, of course, said that it champions, that it is a values-based government and it wants to have a values-based policy, including a foreign policy. But that's, of course, hard to have when those very values are being undermined by your adversary on a daily basis. And as the intelligence reports point out, as reported today in Global News, for instance, that these are deeply embedded in Canadian politics, in Canadian society, and in the Canadian public and private sectors. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University as well, and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thank you for your time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for drawing attention to this. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well. We certainly know uh, in the last little while in a post-pandemic world uh, what affordability has been like and groceries and rent and everything else that seems to be going through the roof. We also remember uh, just before Christmas, uh, especially in and around groceries, this was a huge deal. The parade of shame when all the CEOs of the grocery companies were brought in in front of government and, uh, you know, um, um, uh, well... (laughs) I guess disciplined in some way, uh, made a made an example of. And at that time, it was well, you know, we're going to freeze prices through the holidays, through Christmas, uh, and into January after January, which is something that the grocers do every year anyway. The sad part is that's now coming to an end, and will we see prices jump? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, professor of food distribution and policy, director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University, and here now, Sylvain. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, so, Sylvan, let's first get with, we remember uh, the parade of shame and that sort of thing. Did, <laughs> yeah. did anything that the government do affect food prices in any way? We don't see the evidence. Uh, if you look at uh, the data that was released by uh, Statistics Canada in both November and December, so that's after the Thanksgiving deadline, Um Actually, the food inflation rate uh, was dropping, but uh, it's 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 dropped, slowed down. Actually, uh, in fact, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the December food inflation rate stalled. Uh, basically, it stayed at around four point seven percent. So, and when you look at some of the categories, you, you do see some categories going higher. 
And typically in December, you shouldn't be seeing that. Like bakery, for example, uh, vegetable vegetables uh, were going up and we were wondering what was going on. So we don't see anything, any evidence uh, suggesting that Ottawa's pressure is actually making any difference. And now, obviously, and we talked about this before in the past as well, that every year uh, through the latter part of the year into the holiday and early New Year, that they do freeze prices anyway. And this is a problem. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, and I've actually mentioned uh, this issue with the is Big it Five and Is it price fixing? In Ottawa is it price when fixing? I was there. Is it is it and, price fixing? Uh, frankly, I I just say I said to the group that uh, if you continue uh, to uh, have this blackout period, you will penalize consumers in in October before the blackout and after when they uh, when when food prices rise again. And that's exactly what the CEO of Metro said this week. The blackout period uh, is ending on February first, and 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 he was warning consumers that prices will go up as a result. So. That's really a problem for me. Uh, freezing prices up the food chain will impact retail prices. And that leads to more volatility. And we all hate volatility. Uh, we certainly don't mind when prices are frozen. But is that price fixing? Well, that's the thing. Well, that's the thing. So on the one side, you may think, well, they're freezing prices, so it's not going to hurt us. Actually, it does because it actually brings more fluctuations at retail and and secondly i do question the whole issue of having all grocers asking all suppliers to free prices for a while to me that's price coordination and uh it may yeah. actually be anti-competitive and on tuesday when i actually testify in ottawa i will suggest to the committee to look into this matter uh, let's move on to competition. We've all, uh, in this, con in this conversation, we as well as what we're talking about, Sylvain, we've heard about not enough competition, too few people controlling all of this. Um, and, and there has been an effort made, or we hear that there's efforts being made to try to open that up. Some have said international competition, bringing other international players in isn't the answer. Why not nurture the smaller ones that we have here and bring them along? Your thoughts? Yeah, it was funny. I saw the Game Press story, and uh, the Game Press actually asked two people who are paid by the grocery industry. So I'm not sure there's uh, there's no bias there, but uh, I'll be honest with you. I think anything can help. Uh, even if food inflation rate is minus 5%, we always need more competition. So we need to get creative here and make Canada a more attractive place to invest. To me, that should be the focus. And should we actually expect more domestic players to increase competition? Of course, but we should do both, I think. We should encourage um, provinces and the federal government to actually make Canada, well, an attractive place to uh, to invest, uh, to consider for mm. external grocers. Because right now with the interprovincial barriers, with our fiscal policies, uh, the number of people we have in Canada and the vastness of our country, we really absolutely need to incentivize, I guess, uh, players uh, out looking in so they can actually see that they can make money here. But if we continue to call these people into Ottawa, summon them and accuse them of profiteering i'm not sure if, if i'm little or all the i'm not sure i would want to do that yeah. and be accused of Let's making go. too much money 
So uh, you, you talked or, and alluded to and mentioned uh, interprovincial boundaries uh, and, and restrictions and such. There's a story yep. in regard to the wine industry in B.C. and Alberta, and they're fighting with each other about this sort of thing. I remember living out west, yep. and you could, o- you could only get kokanee in British Columbia at one point. How much do these interprovincial barriers affect grocery prices then? Oh, it's, it's incredible. We don't realize that as consumers, but it's incredible. It's, if you talk to any food companies, they will tell you it's easier to do business with the United States than with other provinces. It's incredible. And uh, there are different rules, uh, different laws affecting different food categories. Uh, alcohol is probably the worst. Uh, and, and that's why it's tough. I mean, when Walmart came to the market in Canada in 1994, when they bought Walco, it took a while before Walmart really decided to open many other stores. Uh, they opened up just a handful of stores back in 1994 and they grew and they learned about Canada and and how complicated the market is. And now they have over 400 stores to open up in Canada and grow the market here is very expensive. And anybody outside of Canada would know that. Uh, I remember chatting about Walmart and, and when they slowly started coming into Canada, then expanded into groceries and such. And I, and I think at the beginning, people thought, well, this is a good idea because it will create more competition with Walmart getting into uh, the grocery uh, uh, category. That being said, has it been a benefit to Canadian consumers? I would say so. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, often we we hear about this deflation phenomena when when a Walmart opens up in a small town. So absolutely, Walmart's game are logistics, and they make sure that they offer uh, very low prices. Now, is it good for manufacturing? That's a different topic altogether. Mm. But from a food retail perspective. Uh, Canadians did win uh, seeing Walmart enter the market. They were expecting the same thing uh, with Target, though. In 2014, yeah. when Target entered the market in Canada, uh, they opened up 125 stores all at once. Nine months later, they left. Why? Because they quickly realized that Canada is an expensive place to do business in. Is the Walmarts pinching the smaller grocers out? Uh, I would say so. Uh, I, w- I would say that there are two players squeezing independent grocers right now. Walmart is one of them. The other one is Loblaw, Canadian mm-hmm. grocer Loblaw. Uh, it is the number one grocer in the country. Uh, but the way that they, I'm sorry to say, but the way they bully the supply chain suppliers, Independent grocers can't follow suit. They just can't match, can't actually apply the same power and get the same deals from the suppliers. And and right now, it it really is suffocating both suppliers and independent grocers. If you want to give a shot to independent grocers, you need to implement a mandatory code of conduct to level the playing field as soon as possible. Canadians set to pay even more for groceries as the annual industry-wide price freeze ends despite government intervention. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University. Always insightful, Sylvain. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You take care. Have a good weekend. 
All right, lots of chatter about city taxes and the tax bill, and of course uh, the component that is the Hamilton Police and in 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 their budget as well. Earlier this week, City Councilor sent Hamilton's Police 2024 budget proposal back to its board in hopes of shaving off some of the additional nine, uh, 19.8 million the service is seeking from the city year after year. To uh, talk more about all of this is Jamie Bannon, president of the Hamilton Police Association. Let's point out. Hamilton Police Association is a separate body from the Police Services Board, uh, and Jamie is here now. Jamie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. So, Jamie, your thoughts on this being sent back and your perspective? Well, my perspective comes from, just to explain my role as president of the Police Association, I am elected by the members to represent the members of the police service. So those are the people you see working in the stations, on the street, et cetera. Um, so my opinions and views will come from their perception of uh, how this feels. There's 1,300 of them in the membership. And your thoughts on this being sent back? Well, it's been sent back, I, I see. But the concerns we have as a membership, and, and like I said, the, the members that come to work every day to keep this community safe, they're already doing more with less than they have for many years now. So we are falling behind um, the other services and what they have and resources they have. So the membership is concerned that any reduction would affect their safety, the community's safety, and the ability to do their jobs to take care of the Hamilton communities. Uh, the fact yesterday, Jamie, that uh, there was a massive announcement uh, the other day that the feds are giving Ontario like $121 million to reinvest in guns, gangs, and, and car theft across the greater Tram- uh, Toronto-Hamilton area. What does that add to this discussion? Well, it's important to understand that the government sees the concerns of the communities. I mean, gun violence uh, last year, I think the chief reported that uh, in 2023, 55% of homicides were shooting related. I can tell you that um, in the crimes of other areas become very transient. People are moving from area to area and carjackings and thefts, things that are definitely a lot more aggressive and dangerous for our community are happening in our community and they're coming from other areas. So it's important that the government realizes across Ontario, you have to support every uh, service or initiative because the crimes don't stay in one area and the people who do them are moving around. And clearly, if this wasn't an issue, they wouldn't be donating the funds to this cause. Oh, 100%. It's becoming, the crimes are becoming more violent, more dangerous, and our community is feeling it and people are getting hurt. Uh, obviously, Jamie, fee- people are feeling affordability. They're feeling the pinch. Uh, we all know the discussions around the tax increases. What do you want the public to know about this and and your thoughts from the police association? I think the community needs to understand that we understand that everybody uh, needs some funding or support. That's not what this is about. This is about understanding how to keep our community safe and to understand that we are running at a bare minimum. This is not going to give us any extras. This is going to keep us where we are and we need to stay at least where we are. We cannot fall behind because it's going to hurt the community and their safety. And everybody deserves to be safe in their home, in our cities and our visitors. And that's what the membership would like everybody to know. We're here to keep you safe and we will do that, but we have to have the resources to do so. What is your biggest uh, biggest expense, Jamie? I would say the majority of the budget is uh, collective agreement uh, responsibilities. I mean, that includes a lot of different areas, but at the same time, the the resource that we use the most is our people. So our people need to be taken care of. um, And that is where a lot of the expense comes from. We're service-based. 
What is the attitude amongst the service right now? Uh, we know obviously there's been challenges. It's, 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 it's been tough to be in any of the EMS services, especially over a global pandemic and such. What's, what's the, what's the morale? What's it like? We struggle at times. It's, it's hard when you have, uh, uh, negative responses to your membership. Um, even the budget being turned back or people questioning, uh, what we're going to do with the money resource wise, because like I said, it's a service industry and we're here. When no one else is available, we're here to help you and take care of you and keep you safe. And we need to feel that support back from city councillors, community members, and the public in general. Where do you think this is going? Uh, where do you think this will fall? Um, is is the tone changing? Um, on the uh, response towards uh, policing or the response yes. towards the budget? Sorry, Both. You can do both. Um, I think the majority of people are now realizing like their safety matters. They want to stay safe and they're starting to speak out. I think there was a period of time there where the momentum was definitely in a different direction, but I think we're coming back from it. I hear from community members all the time how they want more police and they want to support us and they want to know ways to support us because they want to feel safe and they're not feeling as safe as they used to. Jamie Bannon with us, president of the Hamilton Police Association, the 2024 police budget uh, sent back in hope of shaving some more off it. Jamie, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Thank you for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Now, you might have noticed that uh, the uh, governing liberals federally, the prime minister, uh, they've been out on a tear. There's uh, ministers everywhere making all kinds of announcements about housing, this, that, and the other. Uh, The deputy prime minister was in Toronto today, cozying up to uh, the mayor of Toronto in regard to housing and and, and so on and so forth. So, and the reasons for that is prior to to the Christmas holidays, the liberals got a brand new communications person, and they feel that it's not their policy that's the problem. The problem is is um, they're not getting the, the, the message across to Canadians. To talk more about all of this, Tasha Kiridin is with us, author and public affairs consultant, and with us now. Tasha, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, yes. Thank you. I find this fascinating, Tasha, because I found this was a narrative we've started to hear in the last few weeks, and, and it's obvious they're trying to build on this. Is this that we don't understand the prime minister's policies because they haven't done a good job of explaining them to us? Or is it we're getting the message loud and clear, we just don't like the policy or even the person who's delivering it to us? <laughs> Well, when you start having to say, you know what, it's a communications problem, you have a deeper problem. Um, I recall hearing the same thing said about the conservatives when they were on the last legs of their, um, you know, tenure back in 2015, where it was, oh, you know, we're just not communicating things right. Uh, No, um, people just didn't want to hear what you had to say, and they didn't like a lot of what you were saying. And the same thing's happening here. After almost 10 years in power, which it will be by the time the next election rolls around, People, there's a fatigue that sets in and people are less willing to hear you out because they've also been listening to you for a very long time. Um, and they've pre- preformed opinions by this point. They know what you are. And in this case, the narrative of being out of touch is one that has settled in in the last I'd say, year, year and a half, partly because of economic circumstances. And people feel that the prime minister doesn't understand or doesn't relate. And the opposition keeps hammering on that. So that doesn't help either. They found that weak spot to say, you know, he's not like you. He doesn't get you. And survey after survey shows that when people are asked who understands you best, who can relate to you best, they will 
people choose Pierre Polyev over uh, Justin Trudeau on that metric. It seems that um, in the communications game, the conservatives have finally figured it out after years of uh, shooting themselves in the foot, and they're kind of beating the liberals at their own game. Yeah, and they've also got lucky. Let's you know, let's face it. Um, yeah. The economic issues are really what conservatives tend to do well on, and so when the economy is in a bad state and you're not the one driving it, um, it's it's like the gold mine, right? That's the sweet spot for conservatives yeah. to say we can fix it. We know better, and people tend to look at conservatives and, and give them more credit on economic issues. So they will say, yeah, you know, if you ha- if you had the reins, we'd have more houses or we'd have lower inflation or lower prices on groceries or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a combination of things. But the conservatives have figured it out in the sense of they're not deviating from the message. They're they're staying very much on message. And when they do that, they are more successful. Are the liberals in denial? Why do they feel that communication is the problem? My opinion is this implies Canadians just don't get it. You don't get it so because we're not doing a good enough job of explaining it to you. Um, I think they're in this place because of who they are. And I say that simply because of how they've been running the government since uh, Justin Trudeau came in. It, it, it's been a very government-focused, government-knows-better-than-you approach. Um, and when he came in in 2015, it was, you know, uh, the government's going to, to make life better for the middle class. Like, we know how to how to do that. We are, we're going to we're going to make life better for you. We're going to make things more affordable. And they brought in a, a raft of changes, things like you know money for, for uh, child child support or well, child children, um, you know, benefits and this kind of thing um, that they said would make things better for the middle class. And statistically, it actually made things worse um, for reasons I won't get into fully. but the the uh, middle class was actually doing fine in Canada before they came in. But the reason that they have this attitude is because they do believe, they honestly believe, and most progressives or left-leaning um, politicians believe, the government can, it's there to help, right? It's that old yeah. story that, you know, what's that, the worst thing you can hear when someone knocks, the politician knocks on your door, or we're here from the government, we're here to help. Like, oh no, shut the door. Um, these guys are like, no. And so that's why they don't understand. It's a philosophical disconnect from how people are feeling today. People aren't looking at government like it's their friend. The pandemic's over. During the pandemic, it worked well. People needed someone to be there for them. But now they, they say, well, you know, now I just need a house. Like, I don't need you. <laughs> Get out of the and, way. And it almost seems obvious of that when they constantly use the term the middle class as if they know nothing about it. I mean, even a minister of the middle class way back when. Um, I'm not sure they identify that the middle class is is the majority of Canadians here. What about renaming the carbon tax? It was chatter that they're going to rebrand this. They're going to call it something different, which I find just astounding because back in the day, carbon tax, we're going to kill carbon. That was the whole idea. Now it's, shh, don't say that word. Is this going to happen? Do they honestly think think it's going to work? I think that they're desperate at this point. They're playing the Trump card because they don't have many others against uh, Polyev. Um, they will try and diffuse that issue because they know it's not a winnable one. Canadians polling shows also are overwhelmingly in favor of taking a pause on the carbon tax increase or not applying it to certain things like heating across the board as opposed to only certain types of heating fuel. Um, you know, people are, are not seeing it as a net benefit to the environment. This is the problem. It, the tax was acceptable. People agreed to it as long as they figured it's helping, right? There's, yeah. it's, it's doing something. But there's no tangible benefit. Um, people are skeptical about the government in general right now. So they figure, 
you're taking the money, but what's it actually doing? It's just making me worse off. So I wish them luck rebranding it. That's another pretty desperate thing to do. All right, Tasha Kiernan with us, author and public affairs consultant. Tasha, as always, thanks for the discussion. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. We've certainly talked a lot about housing and the issues around affordability and just getting homes built. We just have not built enough homes over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and we are paying for it now in the form of a housing crisis with more uh, lack of supply and increased demand. Problem is we're seeing more and more residential development uh, projects across the country being pushed uh, out of the way into receivership in some situations due to the financial financial stress from elevated interest rates, construction costs, delays, and such. And so at a time when we need building, uh, it's not necessarily, uh, the economy isn't necessarily ripe for this type of activity. Let's bring in Murtaza Hader, uh, Murtaza Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you for asking. So uh, we're hearing a lot about uh, development slowing. We've certainly seen those numbers in the past few weeks, not building as much as we should be in the last year and such. Uh, that uh, attributed to high costs for developers. We're seeing some now back up, go into uh, back out or just go into receivership. How do we do what we need to do here when the conditions aren't ripe? I think there's several challenges. I think not only that you have all these challenges that you mentioned, higher costs, supply chain disruptions, perhaps labor shortages and higher labor wage bills. But at the same time, as we construct more and we start construction of more housing, we have more housing under construction, which means that the labor that is engaged and the equipment that is engaged and all the materials that is engaged leaves little room to start new. Because, see, the labor force is fixed, machinery is fixed, your storage and warehousing capacity is fixed, your transportation infrastructure facilities are fixed. So you, you're sort of limited in expanding more construction. Unless you have more space, unless you have more labor, unless you have more capital, you will not be able to build at the rate you would like to build. So I think all of these things are now catching up with us, and that is causing the big problem. I remember talking to a, a, a small home builder who does a home or so at a time, and there was about a year or so waiting list. Now there's like a four-year. Is that the same sort of situation, just too much work and, and not enough time to get to it all? Exactly. So now people have started committing a lot and builders have agreed. And I think without new labor, without additional labor, because once you have started projects, your labor is engaged, your materials are engaged, your equipment is engaged. I I can't imagine that there's an endless supply of labor, material, storage capacity that would allow people to get the permissions to build and we'll be be able to hit the shovels um, to the ground and start building. There must be some serious review of the capacity constraints, maybe. Maybe these are, they don't exist, but based on what I think, I think the capacity constraints could be real. So what else can we do? Because as you've said, everybody who's involved is working. They're busy. So anything that comes in new, that just goes to the end of the line. Is there anything else we can do? How do we incentivize if, uh, again, there just isn't the talent, the supplies, whatever, to build? I mean, that's a good question. I did a, a sort of a simulation in my in in a in a writing piece I wrote recently, and I said, okay, we are building about 250, 270,000 homes a year. That's our current rate, and we believe that according to CMHC, we have to ramp it up to 550,000 plus homes per year. So how would that happen? Like, how would you start go from 270,000 homes per year to over 550,000 homes per year, starting construction on those 
And this could only happen if we increase the supply-side capacity of the construction industry. That may require us to bring in builders uh, from, from outside, maybe people who have experienced large builders in the States, large builders from China, and especially the workforce that was involved in construction business um, play in places like England. After Brexit, uh, lots of uh, construction workers from, from the European Union were told to return to their home countries. I think we, along with big builders, we need to bring in uh, construction workers from, from abroad in order to have the capacity to build at the rate we would like to build. Is this a problem that exists in the United States? I, I think the United States um, do may not have that kind of problem. And I'm just going back by the numbers that I've seen over the past 20 years, that if they want to ramp up the supply, if they want to ramp up construction, they're easily able to do so. So before 2008, nine, their construction rates were very high and they were able to do so. I think the that kind of capacity is latent in the United States and they can bring it back any time. In Canada, in any given decade, in the past 75 years, we have never built more than 2.4 million homes. So we, I cannot imagine that there is hidden capacity somewhere sitting that allow us to build 3 or 4 million homes um, in, 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 in a 10-year period. What can we learn from this whole, and we've talked about this, Murtaza, before, what can we learn uh, from this so we're not in the same boat 10, 15 years from now? I think the biggest lesson to learn is to acknowledge that this is a problem. You remember, just a few months ago, the prime minister said housing yeah. is not a federal issue. So, so you have to bring in leadership um, at the federal, provincial, and local levels that recognizes housing is a concern, is a challenge, and, and the challenge resulted from almost 50 years of less than adequate housing construction. We need to elect leaders, and we have to bring in leadership that does not shy away from this responsibility or even recognize that they are responsible for creating the right kind of environment. It looks like nobody wants to take any responsibility in Canada. The, the governor of the uh, central bank says interest rates didn't do anything to, in, to housing prices. Prime Minister thinks that the federal government wasn't responsible for housing. It looks like nobody is. No mayor stands yeah. up and says, under my watch, housing has doubled, tripled in my city. That kind of mayor leader, mayoral leadership doesn't exist anywhere in Canada. We have to find better leaders for us to have a housing market that we can afford. And it's not just buying, it's renting. We need to make sure that rental is in, a, is in, a, in an affordable territory for a vast majority of Canadians who are now struggling with these excessive rents. Uh, I've said many times, and I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but it seems for the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, uh, 20 anyway, uh, build has been a bad word in Ontario. If you're building, you're extending your human footprint, you're, uh, you're challenging the environment, we can't build anymore unless we go up. How do we change that attitude? And again, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that building up isn't a way to go because it's it's a anybody I've talked to said it's a a mixture of all of these. But how do we change the attitude away from building is bad for the planet? Exactly. That's a very good question. I think the problem lies with the way we train planners, urban planners. The uh, and I've been a professor of urban planning at McGill University. That's where I started. And I was surprised to see the narrative in the planning schools and the planning textbooks that hold builders and developers in a pejorative way, view. They think that the builders and developers are 
um, nothing but purveyors of sprawl. Yeah. And yeah. don't realize that every house in Canada, almost every house, every roof on your head has been built by a builder. They're the most um, um, direct contributor to society's welfare. So where, where to start? I think we have to look at a critical review of the planning curriculum that has uh, turned students against building, that has turned planners against builders, and it has become sort of this, this war be- between builders trying to build and, and, and the planning profession trying to put constraints around it. I'm not advocating for sprawl. Nobody no. does. But the point is that building has to happen. When Canada was just 25 million people, in 1970s or around that period, we were building 250,000 homes a year. That's 20, 25 million or 20 million people. Now we have 40 million people. We're still building 250,000 homes a year. Our footprint is larger. Our population base is larger. We have to build more. And somehow people think that's not a good thing to do. Somehow we will be able to build these skyscrapers that will host everybody and will be able to house everybody? Not possible. Families cannot live in condominiums. I don't buy it for a second. I mean, I know people like to debate it, and I would love to debate those who argue that, yeah, you can raise a family of two or three kids in a three-bedroom condominium. A three-bedroom condominium will be far more expensive than a three-bedroom townhouse. And these kinds of realities are known to people. That's why you don't see families living in, 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 in condominiums. Yeah. And that kind of, I think there's this, this denial in, in the larger planning profession and and downtown centric populations that don't understand that there's a wide variety of demographic profiles and families need low rise housing and 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 there's no two opinions about it they, they you can't bring them into large condominiums and to provide low rise housing you have to build and and the building should never be a bad word in any any place let alone Canada why is building a bad word? Murtaza Hader with us, uh, professor, data science, real estate management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fascinating, Murtaza. Thank you for the time. Be well. You do. Take care. Today marks the start of Hamilton's Winterfest 2024. So what? It doesn't matter if there's snow. That doesn't stop the celebration. Let's bring in Jeremy Freiberger, founder and cultural strategist, Cobalt Connect, lead on Hamilton Winterfest 2024, and is here now. Jeremy, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So clearly, Jeremy, snow is not needed for a successful Winterfest uh, event. We we learned that the hard way last year when we tried to build an ice rink on the roof of the mall and it turned into a giant swimming pool. So. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, I'm glad you're keeping the party going. How, how What is going on and, and how does the lack of weather affect it? I mean, the, the lack of weather, I mean, I think a lot of the organizations involved in Winterfest have abandoned the idea of there being snow for sure for a long time. <laughs> Um, it's one of the, the challenges of a winter festival, but there, I mean, it hasn't stopped anybody. There are 70 some odd events across the city, um, everything indoors, outdoors, um, and everything from, you know, curling and lacrosse and hockey to crochet lessons and French language classes and crazy concerts and all sorts of stuff. So lots what on is, offer despite the lack of snow. So what is the objective of Winterfest? The objective of Winterfest, so it's a co-production between the city and organization Cobalt Connects and about 30 or 40 other organizations across the city. And it's our job to get you out of your house during this weird Mm. winter blah season. It's gray out. Uh, You might be bored of watching Netflix. Let's get you out of your house doing something active, doing something creative, 
and exploring the city and not forgetting that it's there for, you know, the, the months of January, February. Maybe it's better that there isn't any snow for this, Jeremy. It, likes, it makes people work beyond that. It, you know, my production manager would totally agree with you. We've done this festival five years now, and we've had everything from last year where it was plus 10 to the year that we were at Akmar and we were chest deep in snow. Mm. And producing a festival without snow is a whole lot easier. That's for sure. What's it like in a post-pandemic world for you now? Are we back to normal? Uh, no, I wouldn't say we're back to normal. Um, there are still there are still folks that are um, you know wearing masks and stuff like that to make themselves feel comfortable, and that's totally cool. Um, but I mean, I think what we're what we're facing post-pandemic is that we're probably in a bit of an economic slump right now. So yeah. not everyone's got um, excess money to spend. So we make sure that during Winterfest, there's piles and piles of free stuff. And there's a lot of really affordable stuff. So All like, right. I, like the uh, the Winterfest hub on the roof of Jackson Square, you can go 10 nights in a row and not spend a dime if you want, but see three live concerts and an incredible drag show and a DJ on Valentine's Day and a family day party that'll keep your kids busy for six hours straight. All right. Lots planned, lots of different types of things that have been planned. And, and obviously I had to put the thinking caps on in order to do this without uh, the weather cooperating. So that being said, where do we find out all the information about Winterfest and, and what is going on? Yeah, you can find everything at uh, HamiltonWinterfest.ca. There's a full calendar of all the events and it tells you which ones are free and which ones cost five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks. Uh, and then on social media, we're on everything from X to Facebook to uh, Instagram and TikTok this year. So you can find us all over the place online. On now till when? Till February 19th. We have a big family day party uh, on the roof and with the AGH. And there's family day party on the mountain and a family day party in Dundas. So uh, programming right straight through to the end of the day on the 19th. Hey, you don't need snow for Winterfest. Hamilton's Winterfest 2024 edition in full swing as of today. HamiltonWinterfest.ca. If you want to find out more, it's full steam ahead. Jeremy Freiberger with his founder and cultural strategist, Cobalt Connect, lead on Hamilton Winterfest 2024. Good luck, Jeremy. Thanks so much, Scott. I think they're me on. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one, email via, via email from Isabel. It's Winterfest in the Hammer. Get out and enjoy. No one said anything about snow. It's Winterfest. Isabel. Keep right except to pass. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.